Let's go to God in prayer before we go to God, God's word. Let's pray. Oh God, we come to you now by coming to your word. And yet we need your spirit's help that we might see you in your word, that we might see you by faith. And so we pray now that he would work, that he would give us faith or strengthen faith. But let us see you with spiritual eyes and hear with spiritual ears now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been misunderstood? Why does that happen? It's not you, it's not normally, but the other person's perspective. Sarah Lanier is a sociologist who's studied the difference between relational and task-oriented cultures, which is the difference between the northern and southern part of the United States. We speak the same language, live in the same country, but it's two different cultures. So, for example, let's say you're down south at a place like Walmart, waiting a long time in a short line. All because the person behind the cash register is chatting it up with everyone about the weather and how their day's going. And perhaps you judge them, thinking that that person doesn't care about anyone waiting in line here and what you've got going on. So when it's your turn, you don't say much. You, you just pay for your things, bag them up real quickly, smile, and move on. And they judge you, thinking, that guy's so rude. Must be a northerner. (laughs) Both people actually care about others. And both judge the other as not caring. Culture has a powerful effect on our perspective. So how might people living in this world potentially misunderstand the God of heaven and judge Jesus wrongly? The truth is that because we live with a worldly perspective on this life and on ourselves, it's not only possible to misunderstand and reject Jesus, but it's guaranteed apart from his help. To see Jesus rightly, we need God's perspective. And so we need to hear from him. But then are we willing to listen? Our passage this morning confronts our inability to see Jesus rightly, but then holds out hope for a change in perspective. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, if you're new to the Bible, the large bold numbers of the chapters, the smaller numbers of the verses. And this morning we're looking at chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. Now for context... This book opened up with the claim that Jesus is God come to earth. And he gives eternal life to all who truly believe in him. And then Jesus demonstrates that good news by doing miracles that reflect the goodness of God's kingdom. But one of those miracles is done on the Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders have extra rules to obey 
in order to ensure that no one breaks the Sabbath. Keeping the Sabbath is a great source of spiritual protection and cultural pride for Jewish people at this time. And if everybody rallies around Jesus as a Messiah, then Rome has a way of bringing down the hammer. And therefore, after interpreting Jesus' miracle as a breaking of the Sabbath, they not only reject Jesus, but they want to kill him. So Jesus heads north to his home country in Galilee, where he continues to teach on the good news of God's, of God's kingdom and do miracles. But when the people try to make him king, Jesus retreats, because his kingdom is less about the here and now of this world, and more about the life to come in heaven with God. And that's not only disappointing, but it requires a deep commitment of faith in Jesus. And so many people leave him and go back to what they were doing before. In today's passage, those around Jesus push him to change everyone's perspective with more miracles. And Jesus knows that that's no guarantee. Seeing isn't believing when the world is fundamentally evil and against Jesus. So if we don't want to misunderstand Jesus, here's what we must do based on this text. Trust what you hear Jesus say, or you'll never really see him. Trust what you hear Jesus say, or you'll never really see him. If you're taking notes to help you listen and apply this text, our, our, our outline basically preaches that point. So first, don't misunderstand Jesus. That's in verses 1 through 13. It covers the most verses, so it will be the longest. Don't misunderstand Jesus. Second, open your ears. That's in verses 14 through 18. Open your ears. And third, open your eyes. It's in verses 19 through 24. So don't misunderstand Jesus. Open your ears and open your eyes. So first, don't misunderstand Jesus. Look at verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. This sets the scene. Jesus has just said some hard things to those that have been following him. They wanted God's promised king to make their life better right now, and yet he calls for a deep commitment of faith in him for the life to come, and so people have turned back. This is no doubt a discouraging time for those who remain. The crowds have left, and now Jesus is sticking around an area of the country that's unimportant and despised. But there's an opportunity to turn things around here. Verse 2, the Jewish festival of shelters was near. And this is one of the most joyful festivals that the Jews celebrated. It's where they remember God's care for his people when they were in the wilderness, coming out of Egypt. Even though they had no permanent homes or or farms, God protected and provided for his people. And therefore, this festival, over time, became associated with the hopes of of God's future kingdom. The the, the blessings of the new creation and the, the abundant life that they would experience there. And then, when God's glory descended among his people and filled the temple, the people celebrated the festival of shelters. So, what time, what better time for Jesus 
to go to Judea and show everybody who he is. There are going to be thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem. They're already thinking about the Messiah hope of God's kingdom blessings. They're already remembering how God's glory came among them in the past. So verse 3, his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now notice, there's nothing about hearing Jesus' message. Like the kind of message that just offended so many disciples. From their perspective, the message isn't working. Go to Judea so that people can see your works that you are doing. Show yourself to the world. This is a reoccurring problem in the Gospel of John. That people need to see in order to believe. His brothers want Jesus to reveal his glory, to do some miracles. But verse 5, it's because of their own unbelief. It's not just the crowd, but his very own blood brothers. And these are his younger brothers. They should be looking up to their older brother. Right? Older brothers are the heroes. But these guys have their doubts. Which all adds to the tension around needing to see something. Jesus has been focused on preaching. But instead of growing, his ministry is shrinking. Instead of gaining clarity around him, many are confused. And so like campaign managers, his brothers step into a PR role here. Jesus, if you keep going around telling people to eat you, no one's going to want to follow you. What we need here is a good old-fashioned miracle. And there's no better time to do that than the festival of shelters. So let's get out of Galilee, which no one cares about, and let's go down to the big city and show everybody what you've got. After all, no one seeks a following by hiding. In other words, enough talk, more action. If you want results. The same line of thought plagues churches today. It's really sad how many bad church growth books sound just like Jesus' unbelieving brothers. Without explicitly saying or admitting it, they don't believe in the sufficiency of God's word. The functioning belief is that for churches to grow in this culture... We need to offer people something more than just a message. Something to supplement the gospel to get people's attention and keep them around. Now, as I said last week, I don't think our churches need to be miserable and boring. But what we win people with is what we win them to. And we want people to be genuinely one to Jesus. Which means the main attraction of our church needs to be whatever it is the Spirit chooses to use in order to create real life. And that same attraction will be an offense to many. It's the message of Jesus Christ crucified. And where that's believed, and where that's treasured, well, that creates a compelling community. A community who loves one another and the truth. And that's also attractive. So church, we don't need tricks and gimmicks. 
if we're a people who treasure God's word and love one another. We don't need tricks and gimmicks, something extra to to keep people around. If our community is characterized by a kind of joy and seriousness that's hard to find in this world. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, we're glad you're here. And I hope this is comforting to you. There are no gimmicks here. We, we, we offer something better in a message. That's what God's Spirit uses to give us life in Jesus. We don't have anything better to offer than that, to, than to show you Christ. And yet for some, he's not enough. Even for his own brothers. We don't know why. They don't yet believe in him. Uh, maybe their expectation of the Messiah is just as worldly as everyone else's, and they're waiting on a king to fix their problems and get rid of Rome. So even though their mother believes, they're not convinced. Maybe due to everyone else's expectations. Uh, the, the general expectation of everybody else was that the promised Messiah would completely restore God's people and free them from their enemies. But a more faithful understanding of those promises that people are reading about in the Old Testament looks to the fulfillment of them in the new creation on the last day for all those who believe. Not just now in this life for one ethnic group, but for all the nations. It's a wrong perception of promises that people immediately read as needing to happen right now that keeps them from believing in Jesus. So how do you see Jesus? If you're a Christian, how do you think about being his disciple? Is your answer faithful to the Bible? I mean, it's easy for Christians and churches to make Jesus someone who's all about making us feel better, less empty, or even solve our our practical problems. Even if we wouldn't admit that, that ends up being how we function sometimes. And that probably sets you up for some measure of disappointment. Not that Jesus can't or doesn't do all those things. But if you really want to see Jesus rightly and enjoy eternal life with him, you need the biblical version of Jesus. Apart from him, we're all guilty of spiritual rebellion and deserving of God's righteous judgment. But Jesus was crucified on a cross in order to bear our sins and suffer God's wrath on our behalf. And he was raised from the dead so that we can experience freedom and forgiveness from sin and live in obedience to him regardless of the cost. So that through faith in him, we have the hope of eternal life with God in the world to come. And sadly, those gospel truths can almost be a letdown to those who love this world. Why is that? At this particular moment in the text, the perspective of his brothers really isn't that much different from those fringe disciples who care more about their daily bread than about eternal life and abandon Jesus. And yet, they they want to see that change. So, go to Judea and do some miracles so that your disciples, like the many who just walked away, can see who you are. 
And we understand why they would want this, right? I mean, if we're going to associate with Jesus, we, we would like him to be popular. Where he isn't, we tend to keep our Christian identity on the DL. We tend to keep our mouths shut about what the Bible says. It would be so much better, so much easier, if everybody believed. And that's true, it really would be. And his brothers know that, so they want him to do something. Verse 6. Jesus told them, My time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to this festival, because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said these things, he stayed in Galilee. So Jesus isn't going to Judea on their terms. Why? Because his time hasn't yet arrived. Meaning, it's not time for him to demonstrate with power that he's the Messiah, the Son of God. When it is time, he'll go to the cross to die and then be raised again. But that hour is determined by his Father and there's clearly more to teach his disciples. On the other hand, it's, it's always go time for his brothers. There's no issue there for them. The world doesn't hate them. It hates Jesus. But why is that? I mean, Jesus healed the sick and fed the hungry. No one wanted to kill Mother Teresa for her work among the poor. Why Jesus? Verse 7. It's because he testifies about their behavior. People are evil. God has given us life to enjoy him in all things. Okay? That is the definition of a good life. Goodness is giving praise and enjoying the one who created us in his image to, to have life. It's about him. That's, that is the, the definition of a good life. But instead, we seek the pleasures of this world apart from God because we seek them in ways or at times or to degrees other than he has planned for us, other than his design or command. So we we cut God out of our lives. We, We cut out his glory and we live life on our terms even if others have to suffer in the process of our enjoyment. Okay, that's evil. It doesn't matter what miracle Jesus does in order to testify about himself when he also testifies that the world's works are evil. They won't see Jesus. No one likes to be told you can't do that. No one likes to be told they're wrong. So church, if we follow Jesus based on his word, What should we expect? I mean, it's funny how much American Christians seem to care about how the world perceives us. Think about our message. Jesus calls us sinners and warns us of the wrath of God and the realities of hell. Jesus says he's the only way to heaven. Because he's God in the flesh who's come to rescue us. And he tells us to make disciples of all nations, teaching them Everything he's commanded. So clearly, the world isn't going to like hearing that not all religions are the same. Or that men and women are different by design, and that, that, that's good. 
Or that sex belongs in marriage between a husband and a wife, and that's beautiful. As Jesus told his disciples, if the world hates me, then it's going to hate you. And why does the world hate Jesus? Because he testifies about their works. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, I know it could have just got awkward. But I don't want it to be. And it really doesn't have to be. Because Jesus doesn't hate the world. He, He loves it. He's willing to give up his life for people who hate him. And he calls Christians to be like that also. And even though, generally speaking, we expect hostility, I assume that because you're here today... Uh, that even if you don't like what I say, you're, you're one of those people that we, where we could still be friends. So I just want you to know that you can disagree with everything that I say here, and you're still welcome to be here. I, I hope that you'll come back and ask questions, and that we can enjoy some conversation about these things. And I do pray that you would eventually see Jesus. But we understand, just like Jesus, we can't force you to believe these things. So Jesus isn't going back to Jerusalem just to do miracles. He knows that won't really accomplish anything. He's not driven by the fear of hostility or the pleasure of praise from people, but by his Father's will. So he's not going on their terms. They're going to have to go without him. He stays in Galilee. But look at verse 10. After his brothers had gone up to the festival, then he also went up, not openly, but secretly. The Jews were looking for him at the festival and saying, where is he? And there was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowds. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people. Still, nobody was talking publicly about him for fear of the Jews. So Jesus does go to Judea. Which can sound like Jesus lied in verse 9. But clearly what Jesus meant is that he's not going with them to put on a show. That's why John specifically says he stayed in Galilee. But people are there looking for him. Verse 11, where is he? Which is interesting. It's not who is he, but where. See, they're not really looking for Jesus the way they should be. Especially since there's so much speculation about who he is. Some saying he's a good man, others saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving people. But verse 13, nobody was talking publicly about him for fear of the Jews. This is one of the reasons people misunderstand or entirely miss out on Jesus. It's not always because of what he has said or what he has done, but because of what others think about what he has said or what he has done. And people fear other people. They are driven by the fear of hostility. They are driven by people's praise. And so they don't get to hear about Jesus because something about him invites public censorship. Ever notice that? Even though Jesus heals the sick and feeds the hungry... Even though he crosses social boundaries to accept the outcast. Even though he's never forcing anybody to follow him. Even though he commands us to love our enemies and forgive everyone who asks. Even though all that's true, Jesus is the one among the various religious leaders that people still want to cancel today. 
Something about his name makes the world uncomfortable. Why is that? There's all this buzz about Jesus in the text. Where is he? So much murmuring going on. They're looking for him. Where is he? They want to see him. Just like today, where people love to share their opinions. Everybody's talking about him. And in that context, where everybody's talking, the truth should come out. But it doesn't, verse 13, for fear of the Jews. Is it any different? Why is biblical Christianity always being censored throughout history? Even during the times of world history where governments would place themselves under the umbrella of Christianity, biblical Christians were still being burned at the stake. Whether it was a pagan Roman Empire or a holy Roman Empire. In fact, at the height of church-state cooperation, having a Bible in the language of, of, of people where they could understand it was illegal. People were killed for trying to put the Bible in the language of the people at a time where the state claimed to be Christian. And it's always been that way in varying degrees ever since Jesus was crucified. Now, that's not to say that Christians are the only ones who are oppressed Our own country has a dark and shameful history of oppressing people, and people who called themselves Christians were a part of that history. But that was the culture. Uh, That was a, a, a culture of evil people in that day. Biblical Christians were the main drivers of the abolitionary movement, and they suffered for it. And I'd 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 wager that. You could champion any group that's perceived as being oppressed today and be applauded for it this week. But if you were to talk about Jesus at work, what would happen then? It's probably not good. And it's the main reason that many don't hear about the love of Christ and the grace of God. It's because we fear people. And we want their praise. But we know the spiritual condition of this world is such that they don't want to hear. So if we're really going to see Jesus, we have to open our ears. So that brings us to the second way to see him. Open your ears. Verse 14. When the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and said, How is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? Halfway through the festival, Jesus went to the temple and began to teach. And notice, the Jews were amazed. Jesus gets the reaction of a miracle, which is what his brothers wanted. People are getting a a glimpse of his divine glory But it's through his words. Just like when the Lord appeared to Samuel by his word. Jesus doesn't do a miracle. But that doesn't mean that he's not revealing himself. If you want to see Jesus today, this is important to note. We we do see God's glory in creation. But his spoken word reveals even more. 
God's spoken word is sufficient for life and godliness, which means we have everything in the Bible that we need in order to know God and enjoy him forever. Isn't that amazing? And yet, many times, we act as if we need more than the Bible. Even Christians, we act as if we need some greater experience, something to see, something extra to supplement what we read. Why is that? If this really is God's word that we've got opened right now, and it contains the words of eternal life, Shouldn't hearing be enough for us? If this really is God's word, it should be. It's it's not as if God can say something better than what he already has. Do we realize what we hold in our hands? The problem is, is that it's just so natural from a worldly perspective, to live by sight and not by faith. It's hard. As Christians, we're called right now to live our lives in the age of the ear, spiritually speaking, and not in the age of the eye. Our faith is not yet sight. And so we bring that worldly perspective to the words of eternal life so that apart from faith, they just become words on a page. Nothing to see here. Even regarding Jesus. That's the strategy in verse 15. It's to make nothing of Jesus' words. In their culture, authority to teach always came through the ordination of another teacher. So no one spoke on their own, but through another rabbi who learned from another rabbi, who learned from another rabbi, and so on and so on. And so they're asking for Jesus' credentials. Where did you get your diploma? Verse 16, Jesus answered them, My teaching isn't mine, but is from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. He's not teaching on his own. He's teaching what he knows from God the Father, which is a wild claim. But then he says it can be verified. Anyone who truly desires to do God's will will know whether or not my teaching is from God. This is good news. Jesus' divine claim can be tested by anyone who desires to do God's will and does it. That's really bold of Jesus to say, and it's really good. You see, our beliefs aren't purely based on logic. We like to think they are, but they aren't. Behavior affects belief. If you're regularly doing illegal drugs, you tend to believe the arguments in favor of legalizing them. But if you've never done drugs, those arguments sound crazy. Both people use logic, but that's not all that's contributing to their belief. That's what's happening here with the Jews and Jesus. They reject Jesus and want to kill him. Why? Well, as Jesus says, their works are evil. So if you want to live life your way, and you've put yourself first in terms of what you think and what you do, then not everything that Jesus says is going to sound good or right. You're not going to accept everything the Bible has to say about God. 
But that doesn't mean it's not true. You're hearing it with a worldly perspective from a sinful heart. What we also desperately need is to hear with spiritual ears. Now, on the one hand, we can't. Not unless the Father draws us, Jesus says. Unless the Spirit gives us spiritual life. But then there's hope here in this passage. Jesus is telling us one of the ways that you can invite God the Spirit to open your ears. Do God's will. This is part of Rosaria Butterfield's testimony. You may know her. She was a tenured professor at the university or at Syracuse University in gender studies. At the time, she was living with her lesbian partner and she was no friend to Christianity. But after meeting some real Christians, she began to start living in line with what the Bible taught and she came to fully believe in the biblical Christ. So if you're here and you're not a Christian and, and if being dared to do anything still does something for you, um, then I just, I dare you to test Jesus' claim here. Just test it. Do God's will. Get around some Christians and start pursuing God by living according to what he says. And pray for a desire to know and obey him. And just see if the word doesn't ring true in your life. But then there's also an implied warning in all of this as well. If you live a life of sin, you're choosing to go spiritually deaf and blind. Paul says in Romans 1 that people suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. So even though we can see God's glory and creation, it should be plain that God is wise and powerful and good and beautiful and therefore desirable. We suppress what can be known there by our unrighteousness, by the way we live our lives for ourselves. Even as Christians with, who, who might struggle with ongoing sin, that struggle will come with doubt. Sin doesn't help us believe. Spiritual rebellion suppresses God's truth. And as part of God's judgment on the world, He may give people over to the lies they want to believe. We willingly trade the glory of God for created things. All because we seek our own glory. And that keeps us from hearing God through Jesus. And you should be able to hear Him and believe. Look at verse 18. The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus is just pointing out here that a person who speaks for themselves will say whatever the other person wants them to hear. Right? We, we, if we're speaking for ourselves, we always want to look good in the eyes of our hearers. But when you're speaking for someone else, you just stick to the facts. It's all about representing them rightly. Jesus came to speak for the Father. Therefore, we can trust Him. And I hope it's the reason that you can trust the preaching in this church. It's because as pastors who preach here, we're not trying to speak on our own. We come up here every week trying to get the text right and apply it faithfully. And that's the number one thing that you should look for in a pastor and in a church. And you should hold us to that. This is why at our last members meeting last week, I, I, I wanted you to know what the, 
that last section on new business is for. We always ask, is there any new business in case this church ever needs to raise an issue with me or another pastor in the future? Because according to Galatians 1, churches need a way to depastor themselves, and you should do that when this pulpit is misrepresenting God. Or people won't see Jesus rightly. If you're a member of this church, you own part of the responsibility of all that goes on here, including the teaching. Now, Jesus is speaking the truth on God's behalf, but because they don't really want to do God's will, they can't hear him. That's why they don't see him, even though the truth is right in front of their eyes. They have it. And so to really see Jesus, they need to open their eyes to that truth. Which brings us to the final point, open your eyes. Open your eyes. Verse 19. Didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You have a demon, the crowd responded. Who is trying to kill you? They question Jesus' teaching, but they don't question Moses. So Jesus asks them, why don't you keep the law of Moses? Now, how are they breaking it? Well, it's the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. And yet they're trying to kill him. Now, it's possible that they think they're keeping God's law by trying to kill him. Because Deuteronomy 13 makes false prophecy in Israel worthy of capital punishment. And based on Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus in chapter 3, they believe Jesus is a prophet. But now they judge him as a lawbreaker because he heals a man on the Sabbath. And therefore, chapter 5, verse 18, Jesus needs to die. But they deny it here in verse 20. You have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? It's gaslighting in the first century. They're they're trying to make it look like Jesus is suffering from some irrational paranoia. They're trying to discredit him that way. It's an evil tactic to make the victim look crazy or feel crazy. And it can happen in your own country or at your job, in your church, or even at home with the very people you should be able to trust. But listen, if someone in a position of authority or influence accuses you of being crazy and makes them out to be the victim, you need a second and third opinion. And if multiple people you trust say it's possible that you're suffering from a mental health issue, then you should listen to them and get help. There's there's no shame in that. But if no one sees that, if no one else agrees, you need to be aware of this satanic tactic. And if you think that might be going on, then I want you to know that your pastors here will listen to you and help. Jesus clearly isn't willing to play that game. Verse 21. I performed one work and you are all amazed, Jesus answered. This is why Moses has given you circumcision. Not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made man entirely well on the Sabbath? Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. It's ironic because the chapter started with the brothers wanting him to go down or go to Judea and do a miracle. 
But Jesus has already been there, done that. And the last time, he did one miracle, and people became murderous. Doing a miracle doesn't create faith. Because seeing Jesus is a heart issue. You might think that if on Christmas Eve, God were to arrange all the stars in the sky so that they spelled out, Jesus is Lord, that everyone would believe Jesus is Lord. Logically, that makes sense. But it completely discounts the spiritual reality. That's not how people make judgments about God. Already, all of creation declares there's a God. And yet, despite what's plain to our eyes and to scientific discovery in creation, people declare there is no God. And instead of living for his glory, they live for their own and they seek their joy in created things. This is why Jesus says two times in chapter 6 that no one believes in him or comes to him unless the Father draws him. And he does that supernaturally by his Spirit. But then his Spirit uses means, which includes God's Word. And Jesus uses God's Word right here to expose their hypocrisy. They questioned his credentials while hiding behind the law of Moses, so he tests their knowledge of the law. The law of Moses requires them to circumcise a boy on the eighth day, and if that day falls on the Sabbath, the Jews were willing to circumcise the kid in order to not break the law. But if they're willing to do that on the Sabbath, when all it does is cut off a little piece of flesh, then what's wrong with healing The entire man. The whole law is summed up in love for the the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Everything about the law, it points to the principle of love. And yet this one miracle of healing the entire man has made them murderous. He's not the one violating the law. They are. It's a sound argument from the lesser to the greater. They should have been able to see from the word itself that there's nothing wrong with what Jesus did. Logically, it's good, and it should be obvious. But people hardly ever see their own hypocrisy, right? Our hearts get in the way. That's why we all have blind spots. Following their Sabbath traditions are deeply intertwined with their national identity. And if Rome recognizes Jesus as a new national leader, that threatens Jewish national security. And sadly, people tend to care more about those things than real matters of faith. Throw on top of that the fact that they enjoy these positions of authority and that Jesus undermines their sense of self-righteousness. And it's perfectly clear why they blindly reject Jesus. Jesus is using logic with Scripture to help them dig beneath the surface of mere appearances to see the truth about Him. And we need that. Because if we're just living life and judging the truth based on what it means for us in our present experience, that's going to throw off our judgment. And that's the most natural way for us to judge the truth. 
It's from the perspective of this world and our lives. And that's a very limited perspective. God's word, however, is almost like a spiritual satellite that helps us get outside of ourselves and and this world and and see life more clearly. He, He tells us, shows us from his word why the, the why behind everything that we do and see. And if we humble ourselves under this truth, then Jesus and life actually start to come into focus. That's why we need to be here every week. Because all week long, we're, we're seeing from a different perspective. But the problem here in the text is that they so misunderstand God's law that they're only able to make human judgments from a human perspective. True faith plays no part in their assess- assessment and therefore, they receive two stinging, or a stinging rebuke with two commands. Stop judging according to outward appearances. Judge according to righteous judgment. People who love to quote Jesus from Matthew 7 and say, do not judge. Jesus says not to judge. Stop judging me probably do so even while they're pointing their finger at someone, judging them for judging them. (laughs) But they're not paying attention to the context. In Matthew 7, when Jesus says, do not judge, he's confronting our hypocrisy and hatred. He forbids a certain kind of judgment. But here in John 7, he's calling for a better judgment. Jesus is assuming that we're always making judgments. We do so for good reasons, right? Not everyone is qualified to watch our children. But many times, we're not judging with a righteous judgment. We tend to make judgments based on what we see or what works for us. And so every day in our world, people think and feel certain ways about other people based on where they're from or where they work what they wear, what they drive, the color of their skin, who they vote for, who they know, and on and on and on. The world is a sea of judgment. And it's all based on what we see on the outside or based on what we naturally feel in ourselves. But that's not a righteous judgment. Rooted in God, who is the great absolute for determining truth, goodness, justice, and love. And sometimes churches aren't much better. Religious people come up with their own systems by which they can judge one another based on outward conformity rather than truths rooted in the gospel. Some religious systems have No sense of how the cross of mercy and grace of God's glory and holiness applies to their religious rules. It's not a righteous judgment. And it's the kind of thing that makes people miss Jesus, even in the church. And once again, it's because our hearts get in the way. That's what this whole section is about. The reason doing a miracle won't accomplish anything or why people are afraid to talk about Jesus or the reason that people won't accept his teaching and even want to kill him is because there's something about our spiritual condition that makes us judge Jesus wrongly. That's the reason why behind every time we're asked 
in this sermon, why is that? Just look at life. Think about all those questions where I've said, why is that? And this is why. We have a spiritually broken condition. And so we need his spirit to see him rightly. And the spirit reveals himself to us by his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. It's so easy and natural for all of us to live life from our own understanding based on what we see and experience every day. But if we really want to know Jesus and enjoy him forever, we've got to be people of the word. But that means we also have to be people of prayer. Our perseverance And joy as Christians depend on hearing Jesus and trusting what he says. But for that, we need the Spirit. So we also have to pray. That's what our life together has to be about, word and prayer. It's to help one another live by faith and not by sight, or we'll never see Jesus. So let's pray. Oh God, we've heard what you've said in your word. And so we pray now with your spirit's help, we would see you by faith. And that seeing you by faith, we would live for you. And that we would do this for our good and your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.